It says huzzah on your script. Huzzah, <laughs> motherfucker. Huzzah, <laughs> 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 <Huzzah>, motherfucker. <laughs> Welcome to the Poet Salon, a podcast where we talk to poets over a drink. Please prepare it especially for them. I'm Luther Hughes. I'm Gabrielle B. I'm Duji. There's not enough come in my Campari Taha. Um, so this week we're talking with Patricia <laughs> Coopers about symmetry, sadness, and sticking cold cheese in unexpected places. Yes. Our drink for this episode is the Small Town Drag Show, a cocktail Campari, fresh grapefruit juice, and rose water in a jar. Keicha Kuypers is the author of three books of poems, Beautiful in the Mouth, The Keys to the Jail, and recently All Its Charms. Her poetry and prose have been featured in Narrative, Virginia Quarterly Review, The New York Times Magazine, The Believer, and others. Keicha has been a Stegner Fellow, a Bredlow Fellow, and Penn Northwest's Marjorie Davis Boyden Wilderness Writing Resident. She lives with her wife and children on an island in the Salish Sea, a short ferry ride away from Seattle, where she is the editor of Poetry Northwest. But before we zippity zoom, zoom, zoom on over to Keicha, we've got a question from our audience. Writing Block Riley asks, what's your favorite writing prompt? Aww so wholesome um i personally am not a poet who has ever gotten a ton out of responding to prompts but i love thinking about them and i love reading prompts and there have been some particularly related to revision that i have found interesting and fruitful and the first one that comes to mind is if there's a draft you have that you feel like has potential, but it feels stuck and it's not there. Like rewriting it in the opposite order. So like breaking it up either by line or by sentence and starting at the end and making that the beginning and then seeing what happens if you do it all backwards. I have had some really interesting uh, results when I do that one. And I don't remember where it came from. I wish I could shout out who turned me on to that for the first time, but I cannot remember. When I uh, said this question a lot, I had like immediate writing prompts. And then I realized like a lot of my favorites are not even like prompts so much as like um, physical things that I did. Like um, I'm thinking of C.A. Conrad's like uh, has a whole, um, I forget what does, what did they call them? The um, like charms like I, I know that they talk about them as charms but like you physically have to enact a thing like um if i did one where uh denise levertov is buried um in capitol hill a cemetery here in seattle um and there's a whole uh exercise of like getting lost trying to find uh her tombstone and then sort of like you only spend X amount of time trying to find it. And then wherever you are, you sit and then you like observe a thing and then you write a thing. And then there's also like another one that I've done several times is um, from Shira Ehrlichman. Um, and it's like sort of free writing for an extended period of time and then ripping the paper right in half. 
and then just like taking a half and being like, all right, that's a draft of a poem. Now just like edit it into like an actual poem. Um, and that I would, is wild. yeah, I will shout out actually, speaking of prompts, Shira does like every summer in surreal life, like a 30 day virtual, like you get a prompt every single day. Um, and she puts in a ton of thought and a lot of work into it. Um, and that's pretty cool. That's a really great thing, Riley, if you're looking into uh, breaking that block. Yeah, I'm gonna say more of a Gabby. I've never been, well, actually, no, scratch that, reverse that, never that. Um, it's not that I don't find myself uh, benefiting from prompts. I just don't go to them or use them. Like, I see prompts all the time, but I'm never like, I need a prompt to write this thing, or that prompt's interesting enough. I'm gonna write a poem from this prompt. Um, but I will say, uh, in my, beginning days of writing poetry. I like prompts a lot. Um, there, was a, there was a time where Philip Williams was, was my mentor for a hot minute. He would give me prompts and it was very difficult, um, <laughs> but very fruitful. It was very fruitful because it had me like really challenge, challenge, challenging me a lot as far as like my poetics and well, my poems and um, thinking outside of my poems, um, which Riley, you should be following. If you're on Twitter, should be following uh, Philip Williams. He does a prompt, like maybe like a few times a week. They're pretty, pretty fruitful from people who will say. Um, but usually what you were saying about tearing up uh, the poem of Shira's prompt, I'm reminded of a prompt that I was given probably in undergrad at some time, which was like just uh, taking lines from different poems um, from other people and then uh, um, putting that into its own poem and then uh, um, writing a poem based off of that, off of that found poem of other poems. Um, so like physically cutting them out and like arranging Yeah, them. so printing them out, cutting, cutting a line from whatever, and then making a poem from all those poems and then writing a poem after the poem you made. Um, so that was pretty interesting. I don't remember what I did or how I did, but it's a pretty interesting prompt. Yeah. I think I like the idea of, I like the idea of prompts, um, often more than actual prompts. Um, and I think like what I like most about like being physical with things, like moving like either in my body or manipulating texts and stuff is like, I like even erasure for that matter. Like I wanna be reminded of like being in the world like before I have writing. And I feel like writing prompts often force me to like go interior and like i'm not ready to write which is why i need a writing prompt and like so forcing me to be interior is like only going to exacerbate that problem but there are a lot of writing prompts that do like force you i think like ca conrad this particularly like force you to like be in the world and like move and like consider what is around you like physically um and that always does help um even if you're not actually doing like the prompt quote unquote of mm -hmm of moving like whatever got you to move in the first place like the fact that you're moving and engaging with the world i think means that you will probably end up writing something as a result of it it's amazing how much even just forcing yourself to incorporate a handful of words you wouldn't normally use can charge up a new draft or get you 
thinking in new ways if you're getting tired of like your same loop and your same lexicon. So, you know, something that I know is fruitful for lots of my friends is just to go through the poetry books they're reading and pull like a word bank of interesting words that they don't tend to use in poems and then forcing themselves to try to use them all in one draft. Um, so that's another pretty like simple, easy prompt. Um, something I've been doing, which actually Keita mentions in our conversation is um, giving myself the prompt of like writing a spell for myself that would enable me to like inhabit a sort of state that I want to inhabit or a certain belief or a viewpoint or whatever it is like thinking like what is the poem I could write that would like enact what I want as opposed to how do I write a poem that fits how I am at this moment. Um, so that can also be like just like a general framing sort of prompt. There was a prompt that, uh, that we got in the undergrad again, um, I think I'm like a sophomore and the prompt was from our teacher, Misha Fishman, and she had us writing 10 sentences every day for five weeks. Um, the sentences, they had to describe an object without saying what the object is or without putting judgment on it. So I couldn't say this is a chair, I have to describe the chair without saying it's a chair, right? So I'd say, oh, it had the, the shape is this, and the legs are this, and I couldn't say it was wooden or anything, like I have to describe it. Um, and that was rather difficult, um, but it made me think about a lot of like, I think it pushed me to think more so about description versus judgment. And so that's probably why I'm a big descriptive poet now because of like that initial, uh, those initial prompts. I love that. That's great. That. I think how ah, you say that. Um, well, I think we've given writing Brock Riley a lot to work with here. So we should go over to our conversation with Keija, um, listen to those beautiful songbirds singing outside her window. Good luck, Riley. Yeah. <laughs> Email us. Email us what you come up with. Let's do it. Uh, so Keisha, I had the opportunity to interview you last year uh, for our sweet little illustrated interview. But I was thinking about so many things that have changed in your life since that time. Like your wife had a baby, you've accepted this job in Montana. Yes. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to start by asking about Poetry Northwest, this beloved literary journal that you recently became the editor-in-chief of. Um, and this is not your first time being at the helm of a literary journal, but it's your first time being in charge of this one. Um, and so what are you thinking about when it comes to your role as a curator and a steward of that particular literary space? Is there anything you're particularly excited about that you want our listeners to know about? Yeah, well, I think that 
as much as writers are solitary creatures and uh, we need lots of alone time and um, you know we do so much of our writing alone i think we're actually writers because we need to be in conversation and so our writing is all about a back and forth and an exchange if we weren't interested in an exchange if we weren't interested not only in learning from ourselves but in learning from other people their response to our work our response to their work we wouldn't be pursuing this life and we certainly wouldn't be publishing our work we wouldn't be sharing it right just keep it tucked in a little diary so I think for me, when I think about my role as an editor at a magazine, I'm, I'm thinking about how do I curate a conversation, right? Like not, how do I curate some pristine collection of poems that, you know, every several months I put together, like it, you know, this little, this little thing that's perfect and um, flawless. Uh, I think it's actually about how do I create something that's complicated, potentially uncomfortable, something that has gaps and spaces in it where the readers get to fill those places in, right? And so they make up the other half of the conversation that gets started in the magazine. And if I make something that's like a little gem, it's all polished up, then there's no place for them to come in. All they get to do is admire it, right? Mm -hmm. um, like a diamond ring, which is really unappealing to me. Um, so so I like thinking both when I'm selecting individual poems for publication and then also thinking about how they're going to come together in an issue. I like thinking about what makes me uncomfortable and what might make a reader uncomfortable, either, you know, for obvious reasons, like thematically or, um, you know, because a form pushes against some rule we've been told, oh, you can't do that in a poem or that's not allowed. Um, and, and placing, and then in terms of ordering, like placing poems next to each other that maybe have dissonance, right? Like we're, we're often thinking, like when we're ordering a manuscript, like our own book, um, we're thinking like, oh, how do, I, how do I create like a movement between these poems? How do I create an arc? How do I, even if this is not a narrative book, how do I create sort of a story or a line that can be followed but I think that sometimes when you're putting together a magazine you actually don't want those things you want as I said dissonance gaps uh, leaps and jumps that create gasps right <laughs> um, for for air for breath um, for for a moment to think right so so that in terms of the big picture is what I get really excited about Awesome. I love that. Um, I would love to chat about your book, All Its Charms, um, I, which came out last year. Um, everyone should buy it. Uh, I think it's fair to say that, um, or especially early on, your book's speaker uh, is interested in rendering motherhood um, with an unsentimental clarity, um, especially early on, you know, the process of getting pregnant uh, cleaning shitty bath water is like a really <laughs> striking image that sticks sticks out to me. Um, but then I sort of, I think of all of that and next to the poem, uh, Anna Moya, am I saying that right? I guess, yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's one of those words, um, which I believe means like nostalgia for something that you don't actually have access to, right? Yep, it's, um, a, it's a made up word that, that means that, yes. Right. 
Cool. Um, but in it, the speaker says about her daughter, if she doesn't learn nostalgia now, how will I ever teach her regret? So I'm really interested in the relationship between regret and motherhood. Um, and sort of if there is an inherent longing in wanting to render something unromantic, which feels sort of romantic in some way <laughs> and how that troubles it. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think the, the easiest way for me to talk about that is to think about the poems that I'm writing now, which are all mm. about marriage and my wife and um, <laughs> really not romantic. Um, and, and in some ways it feels super transgressive to write poems about your partner that are like, unflattering either towards your partner, yourself, your relationship, right? Like not just like, oh, it's, this is not the best version of us, but like this is really ugly. Um, and, and yet at the same time, it seems totally not transgressive at all I mean, because that's what i feel like that's what we do in in our regular lives right like we vent to our friends like oh my god you know she never takes out the garbage when it's full she has to wait until i tell her that it's full even though she saw that it's full and she knows that it's her job you know uh. so <laughs> i think you know that's like not exciting that's not exciting at all that's completely every day and yet of course, there's something about if you take that, not taking out the trash when it's full and you put it inside an art form and you're elevating it, right? And you're heightening its importance um, and its power. And you're saying like, oh, this everyday thing actually has a knife inside of it, mm -hmm. right? So I think maybe the same is true of those motherhood poems. And, and I would say that, a, a lot of those motherhood poems are what they contain, you know, inside their pretty shell is a kind of ambivalence, not necessarily about deciding to be a mother, which was something I wanted to do and I've, I've you know, never regretted, but ambivalence about being mother in quotes, right? And that role and occupying the role of mother and playing the part of mother and having a real ambivalence about being the woman in, you know, the drop-off line at, at the kindergarten, right? Um, and and being, you know, the cookie baking uh, mommy figure. So, so I think ambivalence, again, like it seems like, oh, ambivalence, that's not risky, that's not exciting, but when you put ambivalence in a poem and you say, this is, this is really important, the fact that I'm not really feeling anything about this it makes it makes it a, an elevated um experience um so for a poem i'm oh, sorry for a book about uh i'm listening i'm going to I'm quoting about listeners um motherhood there's surprisingly a lot of destruction and deconstruction throughout the book and specifically children destroying nature and it reminds me of how people say poetry is like tending to a garden or tending to nature. And her poems are very neat, like a garden um, or like being very tended to. And with messiness, I wouldn't call them messy poems, right? Um, I started wondering about then your editorial process and how you get your poems so neat. So my question is, you see a, a relationship between how you edit poems into neatness and how one or a children destroy 
and deconstruct nature. Yeah. Um, I think, and Gabby and I talked about this, we've talked about this a few times. Um, like I'm really interested right now in wildness and getting back to wildness. And I think it's because my, my poems over time have become cleaner and cleaner and cleaner. Right. And, um, you know, formal elements have always been important to me. And uh, I've always looked towards um, various kinds of structural tools within a poem to, um, to give a poem its foundation and to hold it up. But, um, and, and for a long time, I applied that rigor to my work more and more increasingly. Um, and I thought that I was testing myself even as I told my students like, oh, you know, you think form is hard, but actually it's this, you know, wonderful thing that helps you write the poem and guides you through the poem. And that's true. It's also this wonderful thing to hide behind in the poem and to use it as a sort of scrim. And so I think, um, I, I, I'm really, I don't love all my books. I definitely don't love all my poems, but I, I love this book. But I also think that there are some poems in this book that, um, you know, stay it, stay sort of couched in in that formality and that neatness. And then there are others that are reaching back towards the kind of wildness that my work used to have more of. And um, and I think it's it's sort of not enough to have. Um, the poem contain emotional wildness, but then structural formality. Um, and, and it's not the same to, to have the reverse, to have a poem that ranges across the page, but then, you know, doesn't risk anything emotionally. I think it's gotta be risky in both ways. And sometimes being risky means writing a sonnet or villanelle that can feel very risky. But I think that, um, that I've gotten quite comfortable in my 10 syllable lines. And, <laughs> and so um, now what I'm trying to do more of is allow myself to do that because I need it. <laughs> it's comforting and it does, it does put, I mean, putting, putting poem into 10 syllables and <laughs> it really does help me a lot. Like it makes me cut stuff that isn't working stuff that's mm -hmm. extraneous stuff that's crap it makes me tighten the language um it makes uh it creates moments of surprise that's great and so then but now after i do that then i have to push it past that right further and then i have to deconstruct what it's become so i think maybe i i, I need to continue doing that formal work in in order to honor its place in the process, but um, but yeah, the it, it's clean. They, they are clean, and I'm not interested. Just as I was saying about you know curating the work in Poetry Northwest, I'm not so interested in clean, right? And and so when I'm reading the submissions that come across my desk, there are so many great poems. They're wonderful, and they're like they go down easy, right? Um, but that's not so exciting to me as the poems that I think like, well, I didn't really get that or like that came out of left field or, oh, there's a place in the middle where something strange happens. And, and my work, I think, needs to go 
further into that place again. And I used to live in that place. And I think when we're, when we're new writers, we, that's where we all live, right? We don't know the rules yet, so we don't have to worry about breaking them. And once we do know the rules, we have to re-educate ourselves all over again about yeah, getting out of those tidy garden rows. And I, I'd love to ask a follow-up question. Um, one of my favorite revision techniques I learned from you, I think I even mentioned it on the show, um, which is like throw it in a sonnet um, to like rinse it out, like whatever draft it is, even if it's like 30 lines or whatever, and all over the place, just like put it in a sonnet, see what happens. <laughs> and you'll learn some stuff about that initial draft, like whether you choose to keep it in a sonnet or not, that's like sort of ancillary to like that process. Um, and I, I feel like in your answer, you touched on a lot of those things, but I've always like coming out of that class, like thought how sort of wild it is to think of form as like a generative revision, a space for generative revision as opposed to a like final destination. Um, and I'm curious like how you arrived at that sort of in your own uh, writing journey? I think that we all have, um, you know, obsessions uh, thematically that we're drawn to. And I think similarly, we have forms that, that we're either drawn to or our work naturally fits so well inside of. And I think for me, the sonnet is one that my work has always fit well inside of because not because of rhyme or even syllabics, which I lean on so much, but, um, but because of the shape of the rhetoric, right? Mm. But that's also really dangerous too. Sometimes I write a poem and I think like, oh, yep, good poem, such a Keitsche poem. Like <laughs> the way, oh, like this transition here, I said, if this, then that. But why so this? You know, so oh God. <laughs> it's just it's just the shape of the of the rhetoric. Like that's how I it doesn't matter if I'm looking at an ocean or a desert, right? Um, so now I'm trying to remember what you asked. Um, so I, I think that like in some ways it's great that I've realized that about my work and that I realized that that argumentation is so central to what my poems are doing that I want mm. them to make emotional arguments. Mm. Um, but I, I think in terms of troubling my work, then I have to, and, and Gabby and I have had conversations about this with some of my poems that like, it's too easy for me to make that argument again and again. And I have to, um, you know, make myself and make the poem uncomfortable and interrupt the argument, right? So I think that's how I fell into that. Um, but now the question is where to go next from there. As you were talking, it just reminded me of this moment in your poem, Landscape Without, when you're getting to the end and you're looking around, or the speaker is looking around and asking herself which metaphor she is and like list some of the images and then is like, none of these are, are the thing. And that feels like a moment in the book where you're wrestling overtly with certain rhetorical moves, certain poetic moves, and you're allowing us into that moment. And mm -hmm. as a reader, I just, I find it so impactful that genuine, almost like messy searching. It's like, I'm not gonna lie and say that this image fits when it doesn't. And, um, so yeah, I think there are definitely moments where the book is trying to, to be a little messier and, and allowing itself to be. Yeah, yeah. 
Well, I think there's a difference too between um, the shapeliness of a line, the shape like and strophic shapeliness, and then the shape of the poem itself. And I think I never want to lose um, my inclination towards really tight language. And I don't, I don't think that will change for me and I don't want it to. Um, and, but I want, um, I want that voice that's really tight to also have the opportunity to stretch more widely across the page. Um, so I look at, I'm looking at that poem now and I feel like that was a way for me to do that, right? Like I kept the language really tight, but I pushed those questions further and I allowed myself to say that they weren't successful, right? Um, without falling into a voice that, that didn't belong to me. And I think it's okay once you've been writing for, you know, 15 years to say, this is who I am and, and this is my voice and I don't need to reinvent it. And I think that was something that happened in my second book, which is why some of you know, I'm not as wild about my second book um, because it, it was a time in my life, I was a Stegner fellow and it was a time in my life when I had found my voice and I thought I had to change it. And I recently had an exchange with a really wonderful poet whose first book just came out and, um, and, and who is a Stegner. I feel like I'm already giving away too many details that would be, make them identifiable. Anyways, this person, um, this person sent me a poem for the magazine and then sent me a revision. I didn't ask for a revision, it sent me a revision. <laughs> And said, you know, this poem just got workshopped, and uh, and and here's I think I needed to solve some problems in it, and here's the revision, and the revision murdered the poem. The poem was dead. It was dead. Every bit of questioning and uncertainty and uh, possibility had just been <laughs> just killed, and um, and I wrote back to this poet, and I said, I said you need to know that you should not take anything of value into the workshop. That is not what <laughs> Don't take something in that you don't care about. Take something in that's low stakes. Take something in that's really rough and you don't even know if you'll pursue it and turn it into a poem. That's what you should take into the workshop. Not because your colleagues are not geniuses, they are. Not because your colleagues do not have good hearts. They have huge, wonderful, beautiful hearts. They have the best of intentions. Nobody wants to murder your poems, but nobody knows better than you what your poems need, right? You, you're already there. All of you are already there. That's why you were chosen to be Stegner Fellows because your work is already at that level. The workshop should be about fellowship, it should be about you know, finding poets who will inspire you for the rest of your life, but it should not be about murdering your poems. And everybody is scraping the bottom of the barrel trying to find comments to make in that workshop, right? Because the poems are really good. And, and so the comments are useless. Yeah. Um, and, and that's what happened with my second book. 
Hmm. <laughs> I took all those poems to workshop <laughs> and, then, and then I murdered them. And sometimes I murdered them before I even took them to workshop because I knew you could who hear I was writing towards. Yeah. And I said, I, ha I have to do it, right? I have to do it. And I also felt like, I mean, the second book is something that's so on my mind right now, but, um, but and, and I know so many great poets who, who are struggling with that second book leap, but there's also this kind of like, oh, I have to reinvent myself. I can't just write another book that was like the first book, even though people really liked that book and it was great and that's why it got published. I have to reinvent what I'm doing. And I think you don't, you have to, you know, constantly challenge yourself and take risks and, you know, push your own boundaries, but you don't have to betray your own voice, right? Um, so I think, I think that learning to challenge yourself while, while not, actively participating in your own betrayal is one of the most difficult jobs as you continue to be a writer. Wife. Butterfly wing, shark's tooth, quill. What if I don't want to be human anymore? Every thing placed behind its plate of glass and the porcupine outside my window. When I tiptoe through the frosted grass to where she chews the red bud from the shale, what is it I long to take from her? Shall I pull a needle from the sweet nettle of her tail and thread it tender through my lobe? If only I could hold myself so close to the ground, my body over the stones making a robe of seamless understanding, a comfort not unlike forgiveness. Tell me if this is the promise you've been waiting to untie like a knot. The Sufis say mercy is the act of disguising another's faults. Even the universe must have its own humility. The sky gently prizing loose each dead star. The minor keys winking out like my lids when you kiss them goodnight. Why did you, why did you ask for that one? Lou? Um, I asked for it for a number of reasons. Um, one, it was because it was uh, one of the neater poems, but also because I did recognize the the rhyme and the sound and I wanted um, <laughs> to hear it. It was pretty selfish. Um, but also because of the line, um, the, a few questions, um, what if I don't want to be human anymore? Mm. Um, and then also, what is it, what is it I long to take from her? Um, and both of those things to me um, kind of tie back to the idea of motherhood and mothering, like the give and the take kind of thing. And so I wanted to like you to read this poem because of what was already asked. And this poem kind of houses or kind of like capsules, uh, capsulates all the things we talked about so far. Yeah. Would you mind, Kate, that you mentioned that it was an invented form? Do you remember any of the rules? No. Okay. I love it. <laughs> But I think Perfect. I think that's kind of I think that's kind of the point, right? right. Yeah. And like I labored over that and right. um and worked the poem so hard and now I don't need it anymore. 
right? I wrote two poems like that and got my work done and moved on from there. So um, I, I often wish I was a different kind of poet, a poet who like let myself write every day, a poet who undertook projects that had goals, that had, you know, big overarching, you know, concerns. I just write poems. And so when I undertake a poem, it's a poem, not, not anything that, that extends beyond, beyond the limits of that page. And of course, what I do in that one poem then changes the next poem and changes the poem after that. Um, but I don't, for all my neatness, I don't, that's, that's not a place that my anal attention extends into. It doesn't go that far. Yeah. So. It's so interesting that you you feel that way, and you you mentioned earlier that you know every poet has their obsessions, and you certainly have yours, and that, and those obsessions lend the books a particular kind of arc or ambition, even if you really are just thinking poem to poem, which I do as well. Um, in their accumulation, there are so many recurring ideas and and images, like in, in this poem and in so many. There's this return to the dirt there's this like downward motion desire to be like physically close to the earth in in that particular kind of way and yet I don't feel like there's like suicide, suicidal ideation in this book there is this constant pull to the dirt to the to like to bury something um and and we, we see that in this poem and I think the way the book begins with this pressing a bird into the dirt, like really foregrounds that for me as a reader. Um, but yeah, there's so much to say about this collection as a whole, I think, that even if that wasn't your ambition or your goal, it still comes through. Yeah, I think, I mean, the other, you know, there's so many reasons that we're called to be poets. And I think another one of the reasons we're called to be poets is, this constant sense of not belonging. And our writing is a way to search out that belonging. And I think that, um, that for me, it's not the, those, those impulses that you named in my poems. Yeah, they're not about you know, sublimation, um, but instead are about like, oh God, the perfect union would be me in the dirt, right? Like what is this joining? that I am so incapable of, um, what would allow me to, to connect, right? Um, and, and I think trying to, <laughs> trying to use the poem as like a magic spell that, that would make that possible, right? Like I, how can I make myself belong? I, maybe I can write the incantation that will make me apart feel not apart from but a part of right because i know you fairly well and have known you for a number of years now i know that you have a rebellious streak in you <laughs> like <con> nothing <laughs> like contrariness <laughs> yeah yeah like nothing gets you more fired up than for someone to tell you you can't or shouldn't do something and I'm wondering, like in hearing you talk about, you know, writing a poem as a spell, which I too have been thinking a lot about um, to kind of 
you know, enact a way of being that you don't necessarily feel exists yet. Um, I'm wondering how, like, what the relationship is between that longing, that desire, that impulse, and this impulse you have to be like, I'm going to show you, like, what you just said I can't do, like, watch me. Like, is there a relationship between those two things? The, I'm not sure if this is going to answer your question, but um, last spring when this book came out, um, I went and did a little mini Northwestern tour with Erica Meitner and Jeffrey Davis, and and they both got to be on the show. Of poet salon fame. <laughs> and um, and Erica told me, you know, they got to see me read. We got to see each other read a bunch of times, which was so helpful. And Erica told me she's like, your style when you're at your best is like sexy rage, right? Like you are like sexy angry. And I feel like that's kind of what where those two places that that you're talking about meet. It's like how do I say this? Um it's like when you're so mad at someone that you love that you want to hit them and you don't hit them, but you imagine hitting them even as you love them more than anyone else. Um, so it's not, oh, I don't know. That sounds terrible. Um, <laughs> Uh, um, because, oh, I'm like trying to say this in a way that doesn't like endorse domestic violence. Um, uh, yeah. Because I'm thinking of like, I'm thinking of like specific incidents in my life where sure. I wanted to hit someone that I loved and I didn't. Um, and and it, you don't want, okay, I, I didn't want to hit them to hurt them. I wanted to hit them to, to break something between us. Mm. Mm -hmm. to shatter it, to get inside of that so that we could connect back to each other. But violence, <laughs> hitting someone, of course, doesn't accomplish connection at all. But the impulse towards it, for me, was, I believe, an impulse towards, towards touch and connection. Um, and I feel like it's those those kinds of contrary forces that are at work not only inside me but also inside my poems like to the desire to use the rules to break the rules mm. the desire to explore ambivalence as a means of hopefully creating belonging right so that slap as a way to shatter some rem remaining scrim between us yeah yeah i'm reminded of actually another season one guest nabila loveless we talked about like the intimacy of fighting even physical fighting which is like not inherently violent right like there's you know it slips into it often but like there's there's an energy that like has that needs to go someplace and that fighting sometimes is like the, the perfect sort of place so like there's that puncturing of like um the mood or like whatever, like the loaded, freighted, like scenario <laughs> situation between people, I think that is like highly relatable. 
Good. It doesn't make me sound <laughs> too insane. <laughs> no, not at all. Um, I am curious. Um, I think like throughout the book, um, the speaker is constantly swerving between oppositional ideas and images, like really starkly juxtaposed, like death and birth, wildness and domesticity, nature and nurture, that sort of thing. But the poems themselves, like we've talked about, are so um, almost radically dedicated to formal symmetry. <laughs> like I think there are a few poems where like even the punctuation is like symmetrical, right? Like the third line has a colon, the first line and the last line of a colon, the third and the third to last line have a question mark. <laughs> like, <laughs> I um, never knew. <laughs> and I have this, uh, like when I see a Keicha poem, I, I do this exercise in my own mind from like ninth grade geometry of like, where's the line of symmetry in the poem, you know? <laughs> like, can I draw she's a She's literally line? holding up the pencil right <laughs> yeah. now. I'm just like, is it here? Is it here? <laughs> like one of these lines and I can flip the poem in half and it will be the exact same part. Um, and so I think about your poems in that way too. And I think it's like a really like subtle um, and radical and like powerful way of treating binaries, like sort of rendering them as reflections. And so I'm kind of curious, what is it that transforms that like what are otherwise oppositional binaries into like reflections of one another that are like inherently connected? Is it like the speaker or the poem? Is it like some other character or force? Like how do you sort of transgress um, the conventional binary into like a more cohesive reflection. Um, I feel like you guys should, these questions are so smart. Like <laughs> you should send them out ahead of time and let <laughs> work, it makes them um, so that we, our responses present equally uh, intelligent. But um, I'm stuck on, I'm really stuck on this word binary that you used. Um, oh man, you're so right, Gabby. I just want to say like the bad thing. Um, I, I really, mm, um, I'm the daughter of a sociologist. And so I grew up with constant you know, dinner table conversation that was all about identity, right? And how do we perform identity? And um, how, how are the identities that we claim for ourselves different from the identities that other people put onto us? What boxes do we choose to get into? What boxes are we forced into? And then how do our, our various performances of identity in various spaces performing multiple identities at different times? You know, how is that part of the whole? And so notions of things like binaries and oppositional elements and choosing one or the other are really, um, um, distasteful to me. Mm -hmm. They feel like lies. It feels inauthentic for me to say, I am this thing, because I'm also this other thing that's the opposite. Sometimes, sometimes all the time, hmm. I'm two things that, that are traditionally oppositional. And, um, and so I think in, in my poems, that probably comes out that, that for me as a human, 
it comes out in me as a writer that anything that's set up as a binary is a fallacy. And uh, those oppositional elements are interwoven. They're certainly not weighted equally. So it's interesting to think about like symmetry. Um, and so maybe what I'm trying to do in those poems is to create some kind of symmetry or equal weight between things. Um, but I certainly don't don't see it that way. And so I, like I said, when we first started talking, I'm interested in complication. So even though my poems are really neat and, and now I have to go back and like find the, <laughs> the, the symmetrical lines in them and see like where, where does this poem hinge and fold open and reflect itself. I think at the same time, like maybe the reason that I'm writing that way is actually to eliminate complication and, um, and the ways that, that those things are inextricably intertwined, right? I think, I think maybe it's why I love the word queer because it is just all the things, all the things, all the beautiful things. And it doesn't ask me to be anything else. It doesn't ask me to perform a particular set of things. It, it gives me permission to be multitudinous and to move between all my identities, right? Um, so maybe that's what I want my poems to be. Maybe I want them to, to be queer, which means that they get to be fucking orderly as all hell. And at the same time, like wild and sick. I think there are moments of your, of your work, especially in this book where um, the poems are <laughs> queer, right? Like, not like in content, but like the idea of queering cleanliness, like, right? Like, it's it's mm -hmm. neat, but there's, the content itself is queering the idea of what it means to be neat, right? Like, the line breaks are queering the idea of what it means to be neat, right? Like, there's, there's elements where queering is happening, where one thing queering isn't happening, which makes it doubly queer in that way. Like, it's, it's queering the queerness of itself, which is kind of interesting, I think. Um, take that. <laughs> um, let's move to my actual question. Um, so in many of the poems, uh, the idea or the word labor comes into conversation, and not just labor as in giving birth, with, which it is in there, but also the labor of yard work, emotional labor, um, writing poetry is a labor, um, the labor of raising a child, the community labor, and all these other types of labor and laboring. And I'm leaning very much into the line um, for migration instinct, uh, the line, sadness is so much work, which fucking love. Um, so my question really is about um, how do you reckon with the emotional embodied labor of what's happening in your life uh, with your wife, with children, with community, when you uh, are sitting down to write a poem? Now, there's certain tactics and practices you use to help with said reckoning. Yeah. I think that because of the kinds of poems that I'm being drawn to right now um, about my wife and my marriage, that like that question is is more at the forefront of my mind than it ever has been before. And um, I've never been worried about how I look, how my speaker looks in a poem, right? Like I've never, 
I've been like, yep, this one's, this poem's about anal sex. This poem's about like what, you know, with a beer bottle, like this poem is about whatever I want it to be about. Um, and I can, I can look mean and I can look ugly and I can look desperate and sad and, you know, that's fine. But there is something about the poems that I'm writing now. And in some ways, like I'm, uh, for a while, I've been writing less than ever because as soon as the impulse to write strikes me, the impulse to shut up that poem follows right after it. And I've mm. never had that feeling before. Mm. Um, I've never thought like, oh, who's going to see this poem or how will they feel when they see it? I've never felt that way. But I just started doing the grind. Do you guys know the grind? Yeah, I just started doing the grind this month um, for the first time. And it's so great because I literally don't have time in my day to reject a, a poem that comes to me, right? Like if something starts to come to me, I think, oh shit, I have to write this down because nothing else is gonna come to me today. Like this is it. Um, and it's it's been really exciting to... <laughs> <laughs> to write poems that feel dangerous in a different way that and and when I say when I say that I'm writing about my wife and my marriage I don't just mean my wife and my marriage I think I'm writing about being a woman I'm writing about being a middle-aged woman I'm writing about being a middle-aged woman married to a middle-aged woman um I'm writing about my vagina and like not in a sexy way um I, and I mean, I wrote a poem this week that was about like waking up in the middle of the night with like uncontrollable itch between my legs and going to the freezer and thinking like, is there a bag of peas in here? And there aren't any peas because we're all out of peas because of COVID. And like, but there was like a frozen piece of pancetta and I was like, that's going to work. Right. And, um, and so, and so I think like to write those poems that are, like not just ugly, but again, like we were talking about before, like it's not that they're so ugly, like it's not like, oh, this is the poem where, you know, I did something horrible to somebody. It's like, oh, it's like everyday ugly. It's like regular old ugly, mm. right? That's somehow like so much more horrible. Um, and so I think, I, I don't know, but that's, that's, that's what I'm coming up against more and more and i feel like i've wandered like far away from your question luther but yeah no i think that's better <laughs> than my question <laughs> i'm so interested in the idea of the ugly mundane or the ugly domestic that's not ugly but it's more so mundane and domestic than people might think like why are you talking about this like, i don't care but that makes it ugly in a sense like because it needs to be talked about. Surprise. <laughs> yeah. There's almost something about like showing that you've done something extremely bad is not shameful or embarrassing. Mm -hmm. Uh-huh. Yeah. But showing them the ways that you are <laughs> doing bad, you know, bad in whatever way, like at 2 a.m. every day at 2 a.m. <laughs> like that is truly shameful like that feels like suddenly there's shame and embarrassment like are invited in the room and like a really yeah it's so funny the the bar is different mm -hmm. yeah but now now i'm going back to your to your question luther and thinking about like work and labor and that and that line like sadness is so much work um and i'm thinking about how 
you know, part of, part of what I'm trying to investigate is like, what is the hardest work that I could do right now emotionally mm. on the page? And I think, you know, there are, there's so, I mean, people are constantly saying like, this poem is necessary or this collection is necessary. And, and they all are. Um, and, and it's, you know, that just happens to be a really overused way of describing work. But I think it's not that every poem that's necessary is necessary for every person, right? So there are certain poems that are necessary for certain writers to write and certain poems that are necessary for certain readers to read. And I'm wondering like, what is necessary labor for me right now? What is necessary work? And, um, and I see around me in my life and in, in the conversations that happen among poets, I see all sorts of things that are necessary that need to be done and need to be written, but maybe don't need to be written by me, right? Whether that's like a different kind of poem about motherhood or a poem about our government or, and, and, and I write, and it's interesting, I keep thinking about this Van Bolin poem that I'm gonna read for you guys later, but, um, I mean, I think all, so many of my poems are, are political in one way or another, but um, the kind of work that, that I wanna do, I think almost goes back to like my roots as the daughter of a sociologist, like constantly excavating identity and like, what does it mean to be a good person, a good wife, a good woman, a good mother, and, or a good enough wife or a good enough mother, um, yeah. And, and turning turning over that <laughs> that rock and and seeing what's underneath it right do you feel like what you're writing are love poems mm. um some of them some of them definitely um i had a poem on poem a day um I think back in the fall and that's definitely a love poem, you know, um, and ugly, um, and, and containing ugly things and, and violences. Um, but, but definitely a love poem. I think, I think also there's a way that, um, you know, exploring, Exploring who we are outside of a partnership is a way of honoring that partnership as well, right? How easy is it to hide inside of domesticity and to hide inside of like the, the easy container for it? I mean, I remember when I, um, before I was married, but I had had my daughter, I took this job at Auburn University in Alabama and I moved there and and all of the liberal <laughs> faculty members were like, oh, you're a sweet little gay family. Like, we love it. And I was like, nope. Like, that's my girlfriend. She's not my kid's mom. She's not my wife. Like, we're not, I'm not interested in us fulfilling your liberal fantasy of a gay family, right? Like, we're not, that's not who we are. I'm not gonna do that dance for you. Instead, I'm gonna give you the spiel about the complicated <laughs> setup and I'm gonna make you uncomfortable and you're not gonna know what to say back to me. And, you know, and then we're gonna be like forever awkward about that and you won't know how to refer to my girlfriend and, you know, all these <laughs> things. Um, but, but I think that's, that's like, that was so much more honoring of, of what my relationship was, which was like 
I was dating this woman who I wouldn't allow to be my child's other parent and who I was holding at, you know, a distance and, um, and who I was, you know, I was struggling to conceptualize after making the decision to become a single mother by choice. I was struggling with the idea of almost immediately giving that identity up, mm -hmm. right? But it makes the fact that we became a family so much more beautiful and powerful. I mean, I look at my family now and I'm like, oh my God, like there's no way without my wife. Like this is not just because she does the dishes every night, but also <laughs> because she is this like beautiful counterpoint in in the structure of our family right we even we even she evens out all those rough places and we roughen up her smooth spots and um yeah so, and that it it's it was hard won right so much better than like oh we found love was nice and then we got together and we had a baby and so you know and it's just been lovely ever since like no it's like totally was shit for a while so Picking huckleberries as the world ends. Our family ranged across the tinder dry hillside. Baby, safe for now within some beetle-pocked ponderosa shadow. Napweed flocking her cheeks. The fires all around us. Everything burning as we move from bush to bush. Soft filtered shadows of birds crossing our backs a dusting of ash on the still leaves, then the berries we pluck, tart, parched, smaller than ever, and tarnished by heat. It's not the end, love, though when it comes, I hope we'll shelter in the consolation of touch, that human habit you and I have fallen out of. If there's another way to live on this earth, let us be brave and find it together. Thank you, Keita, for making time in your wildly busy schedule to hop on a call with us. And honestly, for all the ways you've inspired me over the years with your ambition and your brilliance. Listeners, we love you. Thank you for tuning in. If you haven't already, please leave us a five-star rating and write us a short review on iTunes or Stitcher or whatever so we have something cute to read before we go to sleep at night. And follow us on Twitter at Pod. Tell us about the weird dream you had last night. Send us pictures of your pet lizard. Write a song about us and share it by emailing us at thepoetsalonpod at gmail.com. Building up my fortress, stacking up the mattress. You want to weaponize this gun?
gonna show you these hands Gonna take on these streets Gonna show you who's man's Cause my crew mob steady Feddy and spaghetti Feddy and spaghetti Feddy in the...